0: This is Stuff Post and you're listening to Writer Types.
1: Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie rader Dave. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. Hey, this is Brian Panowicz. I'm Don Winslow. Oh, that's an interesting question. Excellent question. That's a
0: good question. This is Jennifer Hillier, and you're listening to my favorite podcast,
2: Writer Type.
3: Welcome to Writer Types. I'm your host, Eric Bietner, and joining me today is my special guest co-host is author Laura McHugh. Welcome, Laura.
0: Hi. Thank you so much for having me today.
3: Absolutely. Now, you are the author of the novels The Weight of Blood, Arrowwood, and The Wolf Wants In, uh, but you're kind of in between promoting a novel now, assuming you're you're down there working on the next thing. So uh, when you're just writing, do you kind of like to lay low and, and keep a low profile out of the public eye
0: Uh, i think i do that most of the time (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah the paperback for wolf comes out in june and i'm i'm so close to turning in the manuscript for book number four so i've just been trying to lock down and get that done
3: so w- when you're close to the end and, y- and you see the finish line in, in sight, is it uh, kind of make it an easy downhill run to the to the last page or are you struggling to get over the top of the hill?
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm just like guzzling coffee and trying to stay up at night and get it done. And especially now, you know, kids are home 24-7 every day. So, you know, it's a little bit of an extra challenge with that, but it's getting there.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, there's no avoiding uh, talking about the fact that we are all on lockdown with this COVID-19 virus. So uh, you and your family there hold up in your house. So are you ready to murder each other yet?
0: (laughs) Well, well, not quite yet, but this is the beginning of spring break right now for the kids. And Mm. obviously we can't go anywhere. And it started snowing this morning. So no one was very thrilled with that. (laughs) We have a great Nancy Drew puzzle we're going to do later. So I'm sure it'll be fine.
3: Oh, well, that'll be fun. Yeah. So, okay, well, uh, while we're all locked down, hiding away from this virus, do you think it's more likely that we're going to get a lot more uh, sort of spouse-on-spouse homicides, or are we yeah. looking at at a baby boom?
0: <laughs> I, I would probably lean maybe more towards the homicide. I don't know. That's just me. That's where my mind goes. Obviously, I <laughs> hope, hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but yeah, that's just that's how I typically think, so.
3: Yeah, I, if I took an informal poll around my house with my wife, and it's definitely going to be homicide. <laughs> it's
0: been nice knowing you, Eric.
3: Yeah, Thank you. So I, while all these external factors are going on, and, and, you know, life gets in the way of writing on a daily basis, even without this craziness, I mean, are you good at sort of clearing headspace to in order to sit down and focus on writing?
0: Uh, yeah, you know, I kind of thought that I was like kind of compartmentalizing things. I can compartmentalize pretty well usually, but I find I keep wanting to check the news and like check people's updates and things like that, so that's been a bit distracting. I'm trying to you know going forward, maybe cut down on some of that just so I can
3: finish yeah, it's hard. it's really hard let's say if 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 we're headed if we're truly headed into the apocalypse now. And let's say you and I get together and we're, we make uh, make up part of this uh, our apocalypse uh, road warrior crew. What would our roles in this group be in surviving?
0: Oh my gosh! Well, I I'm so suspicious of everyone and so skeptical and so cautious. Like I think I could keep us safe just by <laughs> preventing <laughs> us from doing anything too risky. That's that's my role.
3: Oh, I think that... mean,
0: you might you might keep us entertained. I don't know. I think you would be good at that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling in the, in the movie of this I'd be the first one to die then.
0: <laughs> Eric, no, no. People still need entertainment in the apocalypse. So, you're very necessary.
3: <laughs> All right.
0: I'll keep you safe.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, I I know it's it's a long long way off, but uh do we get any teasers about the new book?
0: Uh sure. If you'd like, um I'm mean, set in the Ozarks again, kind of like The Weight of Blood and about a young woman in this very religious homeschooled family who is abducted from her family's roadside produce stand. And she is let go a couple weeks later and no one believes her story. So the book begins, you know, about five years later, uh, she gets a phone call and someone says, you know, there's this missing girl. And I really think it's connected to your case. And I want you to come down to the Ozarks with me to find this missing girl. And of course she does not want to go. <laughs> 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 and that- That's
3: the setup. Wow. Well, I'm intrigued. I want to read this already. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, it's time to talk to our first guest. Peter Swanson is the author of six novels, uh, including The Kind Worth Killing, Before She Knew Him, uh, and his latest, Eight Perfect Murders. Now, Laura, I love this book. I think it's very clever and twisty, and it, there are so many little treats in here for book lovers. I, I mean, this is written specifically for avid readers out there.
0: I'm so excited to read this book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet.
3: Yeah, I think you're gonna you're really going to love it. So uh, here, uh, do you think that there is such a thing as a perfect murder?
0: I mean, I think obviously there are murders that people get away with because there are so many you know, unsolved cases out there. And I don't think it's necessarily because they were perfect murders, but just circumstances aligned where they didn't get caught.
3: So it's, it's not like the criminals are really that smart.
0: I don't think so. I mean, there are probably some out there that are like a perfect crime and we might not hear about those <laughs> if they never get solved.
3: That's exactly the thing. The perfect murder is one you never hear about. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk with Peter Swanson. Peter, welcome to Writer Types. Uh, I gotta say, I really loved Eight Perfect Murders. I, I was very intrigued, but uh, I'm going to admit uh, my failings here. Of the eight books that you reference that have these perfect murders in them, I am woefully underread. Okay. So uh, let's let's give people uh, the the eight books that you choose these perfect murders from. They include uh, the Red House Mystery. Yeah malice aforethought the abc murders double indemnity which is the one that i've read (laughs) strangers on a train which i've seen the film so many times and i and the book is on my shelf i've never actually read the book which i feel terrible uh the drowner death trap which again i've seen the the film uh, of the play uh and then the secret history so these these are the eight books that uh, this novel uses, and and the killer in this novel is uh, is using to emulate the murders. So my first question here is, like, of all the books to choose from, because you're going way back. I mean, the Red House Mysteries from 1922, uh, you know, all all the way up to uh, 1992 1990 with uh, the Secret think, yeah. History. So, uh, of all the mystery books in, in in that span, how did you zero in on these
2: eight? Well. When I was thinking of the list, they weren't necessarily my favorite murder mysteries of all time, but they were the ones in which there was something very clever about the murder itself. You know, like in Strangers on a Train, it would be about this sort of idea of a swap that two people, each with someone to murder, would swap murders and therefore would have no connection with their victims.
3: If if I was going to pick a murder, Strangers on a Train might be the uh, the way I would go. I think that's one of the cleverest that I've ever heard. Yeah.
2: So I was looking for these sort of clever ideas, and I was also thinking in terms of the the character who who makes the list. You know, when I get asked to do a list of particular mysteries, you want to do one from um, the couple from the Golden Age, probably a couple from mid century America, um, American crime, and then you know try and do a contemporary one.
0: You start out this book saying it is a memoir. How close is Malcolm to you?
2: So I don't share Malcolm's story. If you've read the book, you'll know that's a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> but I do share his reading history, and his his sort of likes and dislikes. So um, at one point, I think I was trying to distinguish between what he liked to write, read and what I liked to read, and then I thought, oh, screw it, he's basically me. So. All the sections where he talks about being a reader, and it, in fact, I think a lot of the book is about being a reader. And he talks about being a thirteen-year-old who just started consuming mass amounts of um, paperbacks, getting them from Annie's book swap. That's all me. So, so there is an autobiographical element. The fact that the book itself is calling is called a memoir is just me having some fun with um, fiction. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, and, and you you have to you have to assume that the author is very well read. So I'm, I'm I definitely assume that uh, that you have a very wide and eclectic uh, reading taste within the mystery community. So
2: I have a wide and eclectic readership, I think, within mysteries, and then and then, but outside of mysteries, not so much, because I I am definitely um, ever since I was a kid only drawn to books where uh, a body appears in the first chapter. <laughs>
3: Well, and I noticed uh, from your your bio, you are uh, an alumni of Emerson College, where I went. Oh yeah. Uh, so I wish I we don't we don't have like a fight song or anything to. to no. Say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you were mystery reader your whole life, obviously, like if you're studying writing, we're, I, I'm assuming then you were always going towards uh, a crime and mystery writing career, but. It feels like in college programs, they're always trying to beat that out of you and try to get you to go straight literary. Did you uh, sort of bump heads with any uh, writing teachers?
2: Well, what's really interesting is I was not, I was actually in the poetry program. Oh. So um, in my 20s and sort of my early 30s, that was my love was poetry. And I do I do remember, of course, when you're in a poetry program at Emerson, you're, you are also taking you know short story courses and stuff like that and I remember yeah they, they really do want to beat the beat the genre out of you which I hope <laughs> which I hope um, goes away I mean I hope more and more creative writing programs start you know they either call it popular writing programs or genre writing but you know there should be more of that
0: um, Peter we all write about murder all the time. And it's tempting to think we've come up with a perfect crime. Have you ever written something so clever you think you could get away with it?
2: you got some good questions, Laura. Um, I think, (laughs) yes, and I'm hesitant to say what it is, but there was a murder in my second novel, which is uh, The kind Worth Killing. It's kind of almost a flashback sequence where um, a murderer takes out her college boyfriend by crushing up nuts and putting them in um, Indian food when she knows her her boyfriend has an extreme um, allergy. And then she hides his um, EpiPen, um, basically watches him die. And the reason I thought that was particularly clever is it's just something you could never prove.
0: Right. Yeah. That would be really hard to prove. And my husband is a pharmacist and he's always telling me, you know, there are ways I could kill you that people wouldn't know to look for that certain thing, which is, you know, highly reassuring. But I've told Laura, my, mean, family, my family to be, you know, if something happens to me, go ahead, go ahead and check them out. You know, so. yeah.
3: run yeah. a full toxicology.
2: <laughs> yeah, good. Well, now, now you're on record, um, which is good. Right. Laura, you should read Malice the Forethought, uh, Anthony Berkeley Cox's book in my book. And it's about a doctor who um, decides he wants to murder his wife and does it through pharmacology in a really horrible um, way. He actually turns her into a drug addict. Oh, Wow. Like on on pain medication, and then makes that known around the village, so that when she has an overdose, everyone will be like, "Oh yeah, she's a drug addict." It's really sinister, and um, it's just it's it's explained in great detail, and you're kind of like, "Oh, it's it's basically a how-to guide on how to." Cope
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm feeling really good about being quarantined here with my husband, trapped yeah. in our
3: house
2: first. Yeah, I hope you. I hope you guys are getting along.
3: I absolutely love a book like that from 1931. It, it there's are they're so sinister and dark that that in a way that I think a lot of people go back to read uh, older books like that and and they're thinking that they're going to be more genteel and they're I think they maybe have like a Jane Austen sort of vision in their head but some of those early books and, and you know Agatha Christie th- thought of just absolutely clever and like you say sinister ways to kill people it's oh man yeah. You've called uh, Patricia Highsmith uh, your writing hero. And I, I mean, I can definitely see the DNA in, in a lot of your books. And I, I mean, we all sort of have to walk that line between embracing our influences and the writers that we love and then yeah. not just doing sort of our versions of their writing, you, you know, kind of like a cover band, right? It's, it's it's kind of
2: a little bit of a high wire act. I think when I first started out writing and attempting novels, those first few failed novels, I was really replicating who whatever writer I was in love with at the time. Um, and I know that some crime writers don't read certain writers while they're writing. But for me, it was just, I think it went away over time. Like I'd done just enough writing that I developed my own style. That was, that was sort of um, complete at that point. So now I don't really worry about it. And Patricia Highsmith, while I like her um, style of writing very much, what I love about her is really two things. It's the the ordinary people caught up in these extraordinary Murderous circumstances. I love that storyline. It's also Hitchcockian in a way. I'm 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 more interested in that than I am in a a detective who's an expert in crime. And and then I think the other part I love about um, Highsmith is just the moral gray area that all of her characters exist in. I really love that idea. Yeah,
3: Um,
0: Peter. Something I'm curious about. It seems like you know some writers they write sort of the same book over and over, or, you know, kind of what to expect, kind of the same sort of thing, your books all seem, you know, to be a little bit different. And I really like that. And I was just, I was just wondering, can you speak about that a little bit?
2: I mean, it's hard, it's a little hard to say, because, because I think, you know, as, as you both know, when idea, ideas kind of arrive, um, sometimes out of nowhere. But one of the things that I do try and do, and sometimes I do, again, talking about influence and um, in books I've read, sometimes I think of a book as a particular type of book. For instance, the book I'm working on right now, which would be my next book, is more along the lines of an Ira Levin thriller, I think, than, than a whodunit or a gothic or whatever. I'd love to be able to do like my own version of a gothic book, my own version of an Ira Levin book. All the things that kind of influenced me and I love, but you know, with my twist on them. I mean, as a writer, you are subject to your inner unconsciousness that keeps rearing itself up in your writing. And so I do think in some ways we keep retelling the same stories. But um, I had a friend notice he had just sort of read most of my books or something, and he said, you know, you always have. Like infidelity is always this huge part. Like, who hurt you? And and I'm like, oh my god, yeah. All my books have infidelity in them. And I'm like, I hadn't even been aware of that. Which was, it's kind of obvious. But I think if anyone took all of our books, if a if you handed them to a psychiatrist or something, they'd be able to pick them apart and be like, oh yeah, these are the things that you're interested in. I mean, I think it, I think you're always showing yourself a little as an author.
3: Yeah, I agree. For better or worse, sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. Exactly.
3: <laughs> well i guess all eight of those perfect murder books should probably be on everyone's to read list uh, and again i'm embarrassed that i have read only one of those although i've seen i've seen the movie versions of two others but uh i, I gotta get on that so now it's time to turn to our resident reviewers the malmans for some other recommendations uh, but before we do laura have you read anything good lately
0: yeah, uh, a couple of really good books I've read lately. One was The Family Upstairs by Lisa Jewell. And that was one where I picked it up and I just did not want to stop turning pages until I figured out what had happened because the premise was just so intriguing to me. Nice. And the other one is The Familiar Dark by my friend Amy Engel. And that is coming out March 31st. And it's a gritty Ozarks thriller, which is really my thing. I love that. So I really enjoyed it.
3: Ooh, all right. Oh, I'm going to add that to the list. All right. But let's uh, find out what the Malmans are recommending here. Dan and Kate, it is lovely to talk to you. And as usual, we are the originators of social distancing. Uh, I've (laughs) looked this up. We are currently 1,882 miles away from each other. So good us.
4: Look at us go.
3: We
1: destroyed that six feet minimum. Yeah. Come on, amateurs.
4: Amateurs. Social distancing overachievers.
1: That's right. I'm actually in the basement and Kate's upstairs. Smart. Yeah. Well, I got in trouble, so. Yeah.
4: <laughs> One of us so, is going to make it out of this uh, quarantine and might not we're not sure who yet.
1: Yeah.
3: Something tells me it's not the first time that you've been sent to the basement, Dan.
1: <laughs> I, all, my, all my stuff's down there.
3: So... <laughs> All right, well, as people are hungered down uh, in their their virus bunkers, they need something to read, right, guys?
4: Yes, definitely. There's only so many times you can read the back of the cereal box.
3: I know, Dan, you've been uh, checking out a book that uh, we're excited about, uh, Jennifer Hillier's next novel, and uh, she's a friend of the show, and uh, this one is called Little Secrets,
1: right? Yes, it was no secret at all how much I enjoyed her last book, Jar of Hearts. So next month from Minotaur Books, uh, Little Secrets comes out. And this was in a good way, you know, not what I was expecting. This is very much a domestic psychological thriller. It's a story about a very well-to-do family where in everything is perfect. The wife owns a chain of uh, high-end celebrity uh, spas. Uh, The husband is a small business owner um, and life is 100% perfect. Uh, And then one day in the span of a moment, you know, she turns her head and the little boy, Sebastian uh, is gone. There's no clue. There's no nothing. You feel immediately. um, The growing tension, the anxiety, the sorrow, the anger, the pain of uh, the disappearance of a boy flash forward a year. And you know, how do you go on when basically a part of your body like it's uh, is gone. So as Miranda, the mom hires a PI and more secrets turn up. I think really the, the, the part for me about this book that really stands out is how skillfully Hilliard turns out layer upon layer upon layer, where the husband is having an affair with a younger woman, but the younger woman is just as interesting, if not more so, than uh, the main characters, the protagonists. Again, uh, kudos to Jennifer Hilliard. Um, this is absolutely going to be another book of the year. And I, I really, really enjoyed it.
3: Well, Jennifer, I know is, she's a
1: mom and uh, know, is she trying to tell us something with this book? I, she actually puts a little postscript in there. I mean, about how, how difficult it was um, to write a story like that. It was hard enough to read it. Uh, I can't imagine how how she wrote it. We've
3: all got secrets, don't we? Just little ones. Just, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Just little...
3: Kate, you better hope it's only a little. Exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in the basement with all my secrets. That's right. Yeah.
3: Well, Kate, uh, you've been reading a book that I've never heard of by an author that I'm unfamiliar with. This is, uh, this is exciting. You've done it right. Jennifer Hilliard, old news, Dan. Come on, Kate. Tell oh, me yeah. something new.
1: Oh, that's brutal.
4: <laughs> yeah, I've got up and coming author Sam Cheetah. Um, her debut novel, Siri, Who Am I? Comes out in May from Quirk Books. It's a uh, modern take on the amnesia story. This woman, Mia, wakes up in the hospital, no idea who she is, where she is, how she got in the hospital. And from there, she's got to figure out her life. And she leaves the hospital and all the nurses are like, good luck. Don't know where you're going, but. You can't stay here. Exactly. And so she just kind of like pieces her life together using Instagram. And so using that, she figures out, well, I think this is my boyfriend's house. So she ends up at this beautiful house in, in L.A., Her boyfriend is mysteriously out of town and she ends up meeting the house sitter, this guy named Max, and she recruits him to help her figure out who she is. Uh, Turns out her boyfriend is this millionaire Swiss chocolatier.
3: Oh my gosh, that's a dream catch.
4: No, I know, right?
3: I would love to be married to a chocolatier.
4: Exactly. (laughs) So how could this go wrong? And as she starts putting things together and finding out who she really is, Things aren't quite which, what Instagram looked like, which I think is a great modern take on first the amnesia story. But it wow. also, I think, dives into that whole social media myth of what you see on social media isn't always what the truth is.
3: Oh, and that's a know. really interesting take on that. Like you say, I mean, that's that's very it's very modern and, and uh, I like when people use you know modern technology like that in an organic way that fits it's, it sort of fits perfectly into into a mystery. That's a great way to use that.
4: It's totally a great way. and really, when you think about it today, how if you were if you woke up and you didn't know who you were but you had this phone next to you, that's clearly where you would go to figure out who you are. Yeah because that's where all of you that's now where all of our lives are.
3: Excellent. Well, that sounds very intriguing. I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You know, uh, if, in looking at uh, how far away we are from each other, uh, I've noticed here that it, it says it's a 28-hour drive for me to get to you. Uh-huh. So I'm wondering if I should do that. But you know, I can click on walking here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's 609
3: cool. hours to walk. Okay. I guess if I start walking now, we might be able to actually uh, see each other and, and shake hands by the time I get there.
1: Well, yeah. And by then, you know, this this whole crisis should have uh, all blown over. So yeah. Yeah, we're ready yeah. for you, buddy. Yeah,
3: everything going to be fine. I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking that if if I'm taking a walking tour through a, a virus infected uh, middle America, nothing bad can happen, right? I mean, that's
4: no, it'll be fine. Just don't read Walking Dead. It'll be fine.
1: I saw on Twitter some friends of mine are like rereading The Stand right now. It seems crazy to me. I'm like, it's safe to say, you know, many of us have our own anxiety issues and whatnot. We don't need to like poke the bear here, you know? No. Or, yeah. Come on.
3: All right, guys. Well, uh, that gives people uh, two great options for, uh, for virus reading. And uh, I'm going to have to have you guys back sooner rather than later. I'm trying to bank a bunch of interviews and give people some uh, extra bonus content when we're all shuttered away by ourselves with no one to talk to. But it's great to be able to speak to you guys. Awesome. We totally enjoy it.
4: Great talking with you, Eric.
3: Yeah. Now I just have to go uh, back to my family. <laughs> oh,
4: <No. laughs> uh, God. Wah,
3: wah, wah. <laughs> Well, it's time now to talk to a debut author. Maxine Mei Fung Chung is the author of The Eighth Girl, which is about a young woman living with multiple personality disorder who has to help her friend solve a mystery while dealing with all these voices in her head. You know, Laura, to me, that sounds like kind of what we deal with all the time when you're writing a book, right? You have all these voices (laughs) talking to you and you're trying to puzzle out a mystery. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's true.
3: Well, Maxine is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist living in London, where we caught up with her. So, Maxine, congratulations uh, on The Eighth Girl, uh, your debut novel. Boy, publishing just loves a debut. Have you you (laughs) been showered with praise and attention, the likes you've never seen before?
5: it's it's been wonderful actually it's been um quite a shock to the system (laughs) um but uh yeah being a debut it it comes with the well for me personally it's come with a lot of anxiety and excitement and hope so uh but no the uh, general um feedback has been has been amazing actually thank
3: you well your training is in psychotherapy and the eighth girl deals with disassociative identity disorder uh, now, is this a, a specific little uh, niche that you've always been fascinated with in your clinical work?
5: I guess um, I've been I've been practicing um, as a psychoanalyst for the for the last fifteen years. Before that, I was doing lots of volunteer work at women's refuges and so forth. But um, what I was finding was that uh, increasingly, I was discovering that people that uh, had survived. Early childhood trauma were um, exhibiting signs of DID and um, dissociative identity disorder, and it just seems that um, it was on the increase. Actually, it was something that I was I was quite shocked with. It wasn't something that I set out to be interested in, but it's something that's certainly grown within the practice.
3: Huh. I mean, it's definitely the kind of thing where like it it would be tempting to take something really obscure and turn it into a plot point and make it seem like it happens all the time. The way, mm. you know, mm. amnesia is so prevalent in movies, like it's, you know, the common cold. But
5: <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, I felt that um, it hadn't always been represented in the most appropriate ways, but also speaking and working with people living with DID, um, the the kind of usual lunatic trope, you know, the kind of serial killers or uh, mass murderers or or kind of deviants, that that really wasn't what I was experiencing when I was sitting with these people. Um, They were often the victim to crimes, not the people that were committing them.
0: offer my congratulations as well on your debut that's a big deal and I'm very excited for you just wanted to welcome you to the community
5: thank you so much Laura I'm a big fan so thank you so much that's so kind
0: I was Curious. um, Have you always, you know, been interested in mysteries, reading mysteries and or, you know, what made you write a psychological thriller for your first Mm.
5: book? Do you know, Laura, I didn't actually set out to write a thriller um, because I think what it was was that I wanted to tell a story about a young woman living with with this disorder. And what happened was that as she evolved and the parts evolved, it kind of just naturally turned into that. I wasn't aware of beats and thriller beats. I just knew that there was this story that wouldn't leave me alone. And I kind of just let her guide the way. So no, I didn't set out actually to write that genre. It was uh, more just about telling a story.
3: Well, yeah, and, and I mean, Alexa has these multiple personalities, and and you know she does sort of end up using them to her advantage in some ways to to solve this uh, kind of mystery and and to help out her friend, mm. you know, while, while trying not to let the the wrong personality kind of screw her up along the way. Yeah. But I mean, it, it and you alluded to it a little bit. I mean, it definitely seemed like you were you wanted to portray someone with this disorder in a, a more realistic way that that she's she's coping with it not being victimized by it
5: absolutely and i think you know there's something in patriarchal terms where often there can be a conflict about um, writing about people rather than for them Mm. and um, and i felt very strongly that was something that was very clear in my mind you know that previous representations of people living with did had kind of been demonized and as i say, the kind of usual lunatic trope and I really wanted to create a heroine, as opposed to a, a killer and a, a menace to society. Even though she can be a bit of a menace, but um, she, uh, for me, I, I wanted to really portray a kind of heroine. Yeah.
0: And um, given your work in psychotherapy, are there endless plots you can mine for future books uh, from your <laughs> work, or do you think you'll break away from subjects that are so close to home?
5: Yeah, I think this was just one that was so urgent because I really wanted to kind of champion um, some of the people that I was working with. It was a community, a group of people that were really being misrepresented. But I think for my second novel, which I'm currently working on, I, I think they're still going to be heavily character driven. but. Um, And they'll always have maybe a psychological twist or insight. But I think I'll move away from the consulting room now (laughs) for the next couple of novels. Um, It might get a little bit tedious for me. and, And sometimes the writing is a nice escape from what I do every day as well. So... Yeah, the second oh, cool.
3: novel moved away from that. Well, yeah, I mean, Alexa's therapist is also a major player in the book. I mean, there's got to be a temptation when you're writing those scenes to to make them interesting and to advance the plot and not have them be just you know a transcription of of mm. a therapy session, right?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there was something also uh, um, ethically, you know, it was, I was very clear that this was a piece of fiction. It wasn't, you know, a case study that I'd been working with. It was very much me making up a story, but, but also obviously leaning into some of the experience and the learning that I'd done about this disorder. So Keeping that clear boundary was really important.
3: Yeah, it's got to be tempting when you're uh, sitting there and working with <laughs> patients to to not be taking notes on the side yeah. for for plot <laughs> ideas, right?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, tempting as it may be, it would be uh, yeah really unethical. So, uh, and uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be like Daniel in that case.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Is it there?
5: laughs> yeah, the, cl- the clients
0: might start getting really nervous if they find out you're you know writing books about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I was curious but how difficult was it to be writing Uh, she has multiple personalities and you're dealing with potentially you know multiple unreliable narrators Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how hard was that and how did you go about that you know keeping these different narrators and personalities straight
5: yeah it was it was really tricky Laura um because um it was um, really hard to keep track of them all. So the way that I wrote it was really to kind of think of them as, you know, as existing bodied people in the world, because that way then the dialogue would happen. And and originally, um, the first draft that I did of Eighth Girl, um, it was actually from the viewpoint of a 13-year-old girl. But that changed because there wasn't enough depth in kind of insight you know she wasn't mature enough to kind of have insight that a a, a, an older woman would have so that changed and then there were also a few um personalities that got lost along the way because there were quite a lot more than there are currently in the eighth girl so a little yeah a few few personalities got merged together there's one character um, or one personality called Runner. She She's a combination of maybe two or three that existed before.
3: Well, you did not take it easy on yourself uh, for, for a first novel. But I I always assume that uh, this is probably not the first novel you actually wrote, right?
5: No. Well, I've written... I, I think I've always written, since I was a little girl, I've always written. But I think in terms of actually believing that I was writing my first novel, I, I don't think I actually... Um, fully grasped and accepted that I was writing a novel until my agent took it out to publishers, actually.
3: Wow. <laughs> at, at that point, it's too late. Yeah,
5: right? <laughs> it's already gone. Might <laughs> I see
0: something about a Netflix
5: option? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate that it's been optioned by Aggregate for Netflix and uh, Jason Bateman and Michael Costigan look after that oh how exciting congratulations (laughs) thank Uh, you so much thank you it's very early days you know i think a ton of bucks get kind of options so we're, we're in conversations but but yeah it's very early days at the moment so we'll see what happens
0: i'll have my fingers crossed for you that is Thank just you.
3: well they, yeah they've done such a great job with uh, ozark that's such a great show and and has the right uh, the right dark tone i think
5: yeah yeah i'm a big fan of ozark it's great isn't it yeah
3: now laura you live right there in the ozarks do, do they do they do a good job of portraying your uh, your neck of the woods
0: uh, they do. I think so. I mean, there are definitely people here who don't appreciate the portrayal, but you can, <laughs> I promise you, you can go down any dirt road and see something much worse than what you see on Ozark. So it's definitely accurate in its way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, in our earlier interview, uh, we were talking with author Peter Swanson, and we were, had mentioned that we all sort of agreed that we think if a psychotherapist were to read an author's body of work, they could probably learn an awful lot about that author that maybe they were writing subconsciously or kind of between the lines. And now we have the chance to ask someone who is an actual expert, do you think that that's true? Do you think if you read someone's entire body of work, you could probably tell an awful lot about that author that they weren't trying to reveal? That's so exciting,
5: isn't it? That's great because that's kind of like character profiling, which is right up my street. So. Yeah, I might just actually choose an author now and just read all their novels and see if I can psychoanalyze them. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, because if we're writing fiction, I, I guess, you know, there's the sayings, write what we know about and, and so forth. But I think with fiction, there may be hints, there may be ideas, but I wouldn't say we could completely analyze because it is fiction and it is made up.
3: All right, so I, I could still consider some of my secrets hidden.
5: Yeah, I think so. I think
3: so. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, Laura. Uh, you're done. It was pretty painless, right? Yeah.
5: Yeah. That was
0: good. <laughs> it wasn't too terrible.
3: Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm always excited to see uh, what you come up with next. And your new book sounds very intriguing. So I'm eagerly awaiting uh, when that comes out. I got to probably wait about a year, though, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I would say so. I don't I have a date
3: yet. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I certainly hope that uh, you and your family stay safe and healthy during this very strange time we're living in, and I hope you're uh, having the time to get a lot of good reading done, in addition to some writing.
0: Oh yeah, I have so many books to read. I, I'm really hoping I can turn in my manuscript and then you know just start binge reading.
3: Oh, that's the best feeling, isn't it? When you have nothing else to yeah. do but just sit back and read, you know, yeah. and uh, and yeah. and raise children, I guess.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, them. Okay, I'll make them read a book too. It'll be good. <laughs>
3: Well, you can find all the back episodes of the show at writertypespodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at WriterTypes, And please subscribe to the show. And if you have the time, leave us a review. Uh, Laura, thanks again for joining me on this. It's always great talking with you.
0: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it,
3: Eric.